Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. I'll be hosting this episode. For more than 20 years, I've provided leadership and guidance in technology and software development. When I'm not networking, making connections, and trying to help out wherever I can, I follow my creative passions of graphic design and photography. Please join me now as I have a fascinating conversation with Kevin McDonald. Hey everybody, Al Deldegan here, and I have my guest with me, Kevin McDonald. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Al. Thanks for inviting me. So Kevin is a, a, a rainforester, and him and I have known each other for quite some time, probably like it's been years. 1995 or something along those lines, but uh, a lot has happened since uh, we first met. Why don't we start out by you having uh, having a little chat about uh, where you came from, what things have happened in your life to bring How you to where I get you... where I am right now. Exactly. Oh, yeah. sure. No problem. Uh, so I'm originally from down east. I'm an eastern boy. I'm from the coast. Uh, I did all my university down there. So I started out actually doing two years of electronic engineering. And, uh, you know, at the time in the early 80s, uh, my mom and dad were trying to encourage me to go into something. And they said, you know, what about this thing called computers? Like, it may take off. And I was like, yeah, maybe it will. So I uh, decided to apply to a number of schools and uh, was accepted to most. And I, uh, I went to a school actually in Ontario for two years and did electronic engineering. But you know, Al, I kind of realized I think I should be in front of the computer, not in behind it. And uh, so I, I uh, transferred my degree into science at Dalhousie University in Halifax. So I did a four-year degree there in science. It was interesting to kind of be kind of on the technical side, but I thought, you know what, I'm still not done. So I went and did another degree um, in public relations. So I went from engineering to science to public relations. And uh, for most people, they would think that uh, I was just jumping around. But... Um, you know, I look back on it and it was very purposeful. I wouldn't change it if I had the opportunity. And uh, it actually made me bilingual. And when I say bilingual, I mean I can speak both geek <laughs> and layman. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it's been very, uh, very helpful to me to be able to relate um, very technical information, technical people to the business community. And uh, there's often a gap in communication between this, those two. And uh, so I was uh, fortunate to always work in uh, high tech, but from a communications or marketing or uh, public relations perspective. And uh, so I got the best of both worlds, quite honestly. So uh, after my university, I said, you know what? Nine years of university is just about enough, I think. Uh, I need to start paying for it. So I moved out west. There was opportunity out west in Calgary. And uh, I started looking around and I worked with a company called Intergraph. And Intergraph was a, a technical desktop company that serviced civil engineering, electronic engineering, and they provided high-end software and hardware for rendering, you know, drawings and those types of things. 
Uh, interesting. They were, you know, they were a U.S. based company um, out of Huntsville, Alabama. And I've been to Alabama a few times. And uh, let's just say it's not going to be on my uh, my vacation request. But um, but I did enjoy it, and it did t- teach me a lot as well. And then I started going through to um, a company called ObjectWorks, which I think is where I met you. Yep. Because uh, one of the one of the uh, people who worked at Intergraph uh, was married to one of the guys that started ObjectWorks. And so I moved over there and I was doing marketing for ObjectWorks. And I really got a, a taste for being an entrepreneur in technology. Because previous to that, I was an entrepreneur um, since I was 19. But uh, to do it in tech was quite different. What were you doing uh, as an entrepreneur at 19? At 19? Well, in university, uh, I saw an opportunity to uh, essentially uh, outfit the varsity teams. So I had a buddy of mine whose dad worked for a textile company who supplied Roots Canada. So high quality uh, fleeceware and, uh, you know, cottonware and that kind of thing. So we started up our own company called Trinity House. And Trinity House was, uh, was to, uh, to provide clothing to all of the universities in the East. And there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So we were very busy. Uh, we decided uh, after the first year to open and go on to retail. And uh, we opened at a very fashionable area in Halifax. And uh, then I decided I wanted to travel. Uh, my feet were getting itchy and I wanted to go to Europe. So I excused myself from my partnership and uh, went over overseas for, uh, for a year to kind of travel around and, and see other things and experience other cultures. And by the time I got back, we were into two retail locations. So, uh, so it was, you know, it was a lot of fun, but, um, you know, some of the partners were moving on to different things. And so we just wound up the company and, you know, university life was over and, uh, which I, I loved university, but, uh, but it was time to move on. So then that's when I went into public relations at Mount St. Vincent, but, uh, from object works, I went to a company called net shepherd and net shepherd was, um, they were screening web pages for, inappropriate content. And so, you know, you have cyber patrol and in different ones at the time. And so I worked as their marketing manager trying to um, work with all the tech magazines at the time in the US and Canada and uh, get them a higher profile. And so I did that uh, for a year and a half. And then I got a call from a company called Shaw Communications. And Shaw Communications was launching um, this new thing in the mid-90s called high-speed internet. (laughs) And I can remember Al um, standing in the lobby of Shaw Court downtown, which is where I worked, and we were doing customer appreciation uh, events um, across Western Canada. And what we would do is we would advertise heavily, you know, several weeks in advance, and then we would draw people in to an event where there was a stage and computers set up to demonstrate, you know, what this internet was and to explain why it was faster than dial up. So, you know, I'm dating myself, of course, but uh, it was a time where, you know, I'm standing there in the middle and I've got 2000 people around me and, you know, I I'm ready to go on stage and this older gentleman comes up to me and he looks at me and he says, Kevin, do you think this internet thing is going to take off? And I said to J.R. Shaw, sir, I believe it will. 
And uh, so they had a lot of confidence in, in the team. And that's what we did for a number of years was go city to city and launching high-speed internet, trying to explain why it was faster than um, uh, dial-up and as DSL as well. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I uh, ended up going to Star Choice, which was owned by Shaw and marketing. I was the senior director of marketing and I uh, marketed to all across Canada, the, uh, the satellite service, which is now called Shaw Direct. So I left just as we were rebranding it to Shaw Direct because I had an opportunity uh, to have equity in a company called GeoTrack. And so GeoTrack was a GPS fleet management company. And they were outfitting the oil and gas industry with um, coordinates and mapping and uh, GPS to be able to give fleets more information about where their vehicles were, how fast they were going, how the drivers were driving, you know, kind of um, uh, information you can get from that. So we ended up, it's quite funny, you know, the, the company was struggling initially and uh, we, you know, we thought, what are we going to get for intellectual property? Like, what is it that we really have as a company? A small company, but a company. And so what we determined was, while Google and many of the other major players in mapping were focused on the off-ramps to Seattle, uh, we were out mapping all of the private lease roads for the oil and gas industry in Western Canada. So we would put on what's called data loggers onto the construction vehicles that were building the roads for, you know, the Devons or the CNRLs. And uh, then we would retrieve those data loggers and um, bring them back to our office and we would have our team map um, all of these all of these roads. And then as our, our network of vehicles that were um, outfitted uh, grew, they were always feeding back to us roads that uh, we didn't know existed. And uh, so we ended up with this amazing um, multi-million kind of road segment mapping that no one else had because no one else cared about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, uh, it was really, uh, it was really something that we were able to kind of say, you know what, no one has this. And uh, so we, we built that. And I stayed actually with GeoTrack for about 11 years and uh, grew it. And then we sold it to a US company called Trimble Navigation. And Trimble leads GPS surveying technologies. So for agriculture or for manufacturing or for engineering, those types of things. And uh, so I stayed on for a few extra years to make sure that the transition from uh, Canadian owned to a U.S. owned company was going to uh, was going to work out OK. So and then, you know, I decided it's time to take a, a bit of a break. So that's how I got involved with Rainforest. I stood up Al, in my first Rainforest meeting. And I, uh, I remember that I didn't realize that we had to stand and actually introduce ourselves. Most no one, people don't. No one ever tells you that, <laughs> no, right? When not. you go to rainforest. You want to see them squirm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, sho I was shocked when I walked in the room because there was, well, there must have been 75 or 80 people there. And I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised. So I walk in and didn't really know anyone, um, but you know, you quickly start realizing that people are there to meet others and so they're willing to talk to you. So then the time came, we had to introduce ourselves. So I stood up there and they gave me the mic. I only had about 45 seconds. And I said, hi, I'm Kevin McDonald. I am not looking for a job. <laughs> I am not looking for funding. I am not looking for a contract. I'm not looking for any money. 
I said, what I want to do is I want to pay back to the community some business advice on marketing, sales, operations, support for technology companies and entrepreneurs, and provide some guidance to young people who need a helping hand. Uh, I had a lot of people in my career in 30 years that took a chance on me. And so I, uh, I felt it was time to give that back. And Rainforest was the perfect opportunity for that. You know, when you go in and you read their social contract and you, you know, you sign off on that, the expectation is you're there to help and network and talk to people. And, uh, you know, there, everyone's going to have challenges. So, you know, we're there to kind of help, um, steer and, you know, give a different path to people because if we can prevent people from going down the wrong path, um, it's, you know, it's a quicker route to success. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so I wanted to, to do that. So right now what I do is I, I have a number of people that I coach, you know, I'm doing some, uh, mentorship for a number of people as well and providing business advice. I overlook sales plans, marketing plans, communication plans. I'm also involved in the finance side. So, you know, I have opportunities to invest myself or, bring together investors and entrepreneurs. Cool. And uh, so what I get out of it is the exposure to some great technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have a keen interest in things like um, artificial intelligence or machine language or alternative energies. So, you know, anyone in the group that is, is working on those types of technologies, I'm very keen to talk to. And, uh, and I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Right. So the inner geek is being satisfied. The inner too. geek is getting, getting what it's need, what it needs. And, uh, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. And, you know, if I can help others on the way, then that's a win-win situation. So I really, I really do enjoy that. Perfect. Perfect. So let's, let's take that a little bit further. So you've been helping all these people and you, you, uh, you have this incredible experience behind you. What's sort of some uh, some key takeaways that you find in general people are uh, are experiencing or not experiencing or are things that they should know? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I first started uh, doing this a few years ago, I was very keen to make people know, make sure people knew that I I didn't charge for anything. But I quickly realized that that doesn't work. And the reason for that is people kind of raise an eyebrow when they look at you and they're like, what do you mean you're not charging me anything? What do you mean you don't have an hourly rate? What do you mean you're not looking for a contract? And I think what happens in our business community here in Calgary and probably in other places as well is that if you're not asking for money, then you're not part of the business community. And that's not the case. So uh, what I do now is I let people know what my hourly rate is and then I'll either discount it to them or, you know, do pro bono. But I always make sure that people understand that there is value okay. in what I'm providing. But I don't think people really associate uh, value with anything that's free. Mm. So I, that was a learning for me. You know, I thought that I, as much as I had people coming up to me after my first meeting at Rainforest, you know, after getting up there and explaining what, is, what it is I was doing, uh, you know, the meeting ended at like 10 after one and I didn't get out of there until 20 after three. Oh, wow. Right. Cause people, I had a lineup of people, mm-hmm. you know, they, they heard the word free, uh, which was good. But I think in some cases people either think there's a hidden agenda 
or that uh, that there's no value there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've changed my perspective in terms of when I talk to people and how I do that. So that was a big learning. You know, and at my age, Al, I'm still up for a lot of learning, right? So that's why I wanted to be involved with what I'm doing is, is uh, have some takeaways from that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What do you think are mistakes that people consistently are making out of all the people that you've been talking to so far? Well, there's a big one. And uh, for you uh, listeners out there, you can't see what's sitting on the table in front of Al and I, but it's Kool-Aid. And Al looked at it quizzically and wasn't sure what it was and why I was bringing it. And, and I said to him, I said, don't drink this. And he looked at me. I said, do not drink this Kool-Aid. So I would say one of the biggest learnings for entrepreneurs is to not drink their Kool-Aid. And what I mean by that is it's always a struggle between build versus buy. And that was one of the learnings I had when I worked at GeoTrack. So we were building custom um, satellite GPS receivers to go into vehicles. And it was using a technology called called a low earth orbit satellite uh, network. And uh, so we were one of the first in North America to build these. So as we're building them uh, and building other accessories to go with them, partway through the build, as a company, we realized, "Uh uh-oh, somebody has beat us to it. And so we had a decision. Do we build faster? You know, are we confident that we can get it out to the marketplace? And even if we're second to market, that we can overtake first place? Or do we buy? So the question was build versus buy. And so, you know, with, with people in, in technology, they're so passionate, so passionate about what it is that they're, that they're doing and what they're building. And uh, I find that, uh, you know, sometimes they're building for the sake of building without ever thinking about taking it to the market, about monetizing it or commoditizing it. And so part of what my role is uh, with, with technology companies is to get it from idea to market. And uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of business planning and uh, competitive analysis that you should do. But, you know, the, the Kool-Aid is essentially don't believe yourself so much that you can't go out and have to, you know, buy something as opposed to build it yourself. You have to get over your own ego, right? essentially, right? And it's hard for, for people who have been, you know, sacrificing a lot to build a particular application or or piece of hardware to go, you know what? I missed it. Mm-hmm. I missed it. I wasn't fast enough. Mm-hmm. But entrepreneurs, you know, those types of people have a mind that moves from idea to idea. So never give up on your idea. Even though you may be late to the market, take another perspective, build a different application and learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Because it's, uh, it's important that you don't have blinders on, mm-hmm. right? When you're building or when you're working in uh, technology or in the business community, because it prevents you from looking around and seeing who else is out there. Who is your competition? You know, one of the first things I always ask is, what do you believe you have here for intellectual property? And the entrepreneur will explain it to me. And I said, all right, who else has this? And the answer I typically get is, Nobody, nobody, nobody has this. And I'm like, really, really? Nobody has this. I said, all right, leave it with me and see, you know, and more often than not, I can come back with either a direct competitor or something or someone that is pretty close. 
And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to burst their bubble, but they do have to have a dose of reality. Right. And, uh, in the long run, I think that really helps people, helps entrepreneurs because then they're going, okay, you know what? The question I need to ask is why will this not work? Mm-hmm. Why will this not work? And if you spend most of your time trying to answer that question, by the end of it, if you still don't have an answer, then you've got a product. Yeah, for sure. Or a service, right? But you need to ask that question all the time. Why will this not work? You know, you have to be open to honest criticism and feedback from friends, family, um, other people in the community, uh, investors. You know, everyone seems to have an opinion in terms of what it is you're, what it is you're doing. So you have to be open. You have to have a thick skin and you have to be able to take that criticism and use it in such a way that's going to to help you yeah. and not, and not uh, you know, take you down. But, you know, I find entrepreneurs have that ability to be able to kind of change from, you know, one idea to another. It's not about having it half-baked and then losing interest and going on to something else. It's getting to a point where you go, you know what, I've missed it. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and that's important. And a true, a true entrepreneur has the tenacity and the desire to make something happen. And it's not that you ignore advice or you ignore criticism it's that you take what you can from that and then deal with it it shouldn't be afraid to fail in respect of you you've got this idea and you're going forward with it but then you realize that it's not going to work out drop that idea and then take a different idea because you're an entrepreneur you're going to do something spectacular absolutely so don't hang your hat on one idea and then fight it tooth and nail right into the ground until everybody's dead because that's <laughs> not going to be of any benefit to anyone and the other you're thing absolutely right the other thing too that's really important is when you're thinking about starting a business find a customer right i think it was warren buffett that was saying something along those lines but if you don't have a customer why are you spending all this time building and a lot of time with software developer or software plays in general, it's like, oh, we've got this great idea for the next new blah, blah, blah. And then they just spend a year and 15 developers going to town and then trying to raise money and whatever. And then not one person has said, do we really need this? Right. You know, and it, it can be like a lot of wasted time and effort. And then there's brings in what you just said about the fact that it may already exist and you could just buy it and then fix it or buy it and continue. Or make it better. Or improve it. it better. Right? Yeah. But you know, Al, you learn way more from failures mm-hmm. than from successes. Yeah. You learn way more from bad managers than good managers. True. Right? True. So uh, never be afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you have to always use that as a, as a learning experience and kind of pick yourself up and keep going. And, you know, you often hear the term serial entrepreneur. And that is because people will go from idea to idea to idea. And, you know, it's a type of person that, you know, they're visionary, uh, big picture. Um, you know, they may struggle with certain things like details. <laughs> you know, some of the companies that I've been involved with or invested in, uh, we always have what's called founder founderitis. You know, it's, it's a period of time where the founder of the company um, is still involved with you know, with the company that you bought or that you uh, invested in. And uh, there's a difference of opinion in terms of which way the company should go. And because it's their baby, they make decisions from the heart mm-hmm. and not from the head. Right. right. And so when you bring in a new management team, uh, they can think objectively and treat it as an application or a piece of hardware. 
then it's much easier to be objective and kind of know when to get it out to market, be real about who competes with you. And uh, so, you know, in some cases we have to buy out the founder, say thank you very much for your ideas, it was awesome, and uh, and leave that, and then uh, take the company in the direction you believe will get it to market. Because ultimately, if no one sees your application or your hardware, it's not worth anything. Yeah. It's right? like a painter painting something and then throwing it in a closet. That's right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's important that you get it out there. But, you know, the other thing, too, is not to panic. Right. Not to panic and not to um, be too rash in terms of what you're doing. So, you know, you have to be very methodical, just like, you know, when you're building or developing something, you have to be methodical about how do I get this to market? What are the questions I need to ask? Where are my answers? You know, so a full-blown business plan is required. A full-blown competitive analysis, you know, P&L, profit and loss determination has to be made. And you may get to the end of it um, and go, wow, I don't think I can make enough money off of this. Right? It's like a coffee shop. You think, wow, you've built a coffee shop and selling a cup of coffee? Well, but I, you know, service 700 people a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get there. But you have to make sure that, uh, that you know that in advance. And so there's a lot of thought that has to be put into any product or service coming to market. And be very objective. Do not drink your own Kool-Aid. Yep. That's a great way to put it. Aside from that, now, what's some of the success that you've seen from, from your mentoring? And maybe not just from your mentoring, but as a part of your mentoring, what's, what's some of the successes you've seen? Well, you know, one of the things we work with in terms of entrepreneurs is pitching, you know, and we hear about pitching all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll have contests and we'll have competitions and, you know, we'll choose, you know, a certain number of companies and have them pitch in front of a, either a jury or an audience and and then we'll rate them. So I think the opportunity to get out of the basement and get in front of an audience um, can be very, very helpful to people. And so, you know, I see that success and I, I can follow companies or people over their careers and see a, a real change in terms of their, their, their perspective. Because your perspective changes the more experience you get, the more failures you have. Um, and then, you know, I think what happens is you see people kind of, um, you know, very kind of introverted and kind of to themselves and they don't want to talk and they just want to develop and then two years later, they're up on stage with a mic, you know, in their hand and they're pitching their company to investors. So they're talking about finance, they're talking about sales, they're talking about marketing, all of the things that you need to have as a company. And uh, so I think some of the successes is being able to broaden your mind um, out of technology and into the business world and have a true understanding of that. So, you know, GeoTrack was started with six people. Uh, we grew it to 50 um, and then essentially grew it to 15,000. And, uh, you know, the ability to, to, to work with a U.S. company was important for us. We had 500 oil and gas companies in Canada that were our customers. But, uh, you know, with the oil and gas industry in the last, say, four or five years, it's been struggling. Uh, we did have the opportunity to kind of do operations in the U.S., and the U.S. Uh, is still doing quite well. So, you know, there is success in being able to open and broaden your mind in terms of your markets as well. 
you know, you may think that you're just a Calgary-based company or that you're only Alberta-based. But if you broaden your perspective and think, you know what, there's applications for this in other markets and not to be afraid to go out there and test those markets. And so that's what we did with GeoTrack. We were able to get out there. I do remember going to a place in West Texas and uh, it's uh, Odessa, Midland, Texas. And Midland, Texas is where uh, George Bush uh, raised his family, George and Barbara Bush and their son, J.W. Bush. And uh, so it's a small little town in West Texas and, uh, and Odessa is right beside it. And it's a, it's a rough working oil and gas services company town. So I show up with one of my partners and I, you know, I walk into their trade show and I'm looking around and I'm sure I stuck out like a sore thumb, but you know, I didn't necessarily speak Texan, but by the end of those four days, I sure did. <laughs> I don't know if I had the twang, but I certainly knew how to speak like they did. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go down there and understand their market. And that was important for me. And, uh, you know, the, uh, one, of, one of the interesting things, too, is one night I'm standing um, at the bar in our hotel. And uh, in the hotel is close to where the, the show is. And so a lot of the people staying there are from the show. So I see people coming and going that I've seen all day, essentially. But these two guys walk in, and they're dressed in fatigues. And they're looking a little rough around the edges. So they come over, and they sit beside us. They go, hey, fellas, what's going on? And I said, well, what have you been up to? He goes, hunting. I said, you're hunting? Yeah. What are you hunting? You know, I'm thinking partridge or deer or whatever, you know. Doves. You hunt doves? You hunt doves in West Texas. I'm like, damn straight. And I said, so what's with the fatigues? He said, well, you need to blend in. And I'm like, wow. You, you realize West Texas is almost like a desert. There's nothing to blend into. So these fellas decided one day that they were going to go to Walmart, buy these fatigues because they needed to be dressed for the event. They get in their pickup truck. They drive out into the middle of nowhere take their shotguns out and they start shooting doves and they came back with two garbage bags of doves and i'm like wow where are we like what is this place right and uh <laughs> it gets better it gets better al so the guys are like so where are you from i said i'm from calgary and i i, I pretty much thought that everyone in west texas knew where calgary was right we're middle of oil and gas like, oh, yeah, you're Northerners. We know where you're from. And they said, have you ever eaten dove? And I'm like, dude, I don't think I've ever eaten dove. So he's like, we'll change that. I'm like, really? So he goes out to his truck. So we're staying at a Hilton in, uh, in uh, Odessa. And it's a relatively new hotel. It's, you know, it's quite nice. And he comes back in with this garbage bag full of doves into the hotel, into the main bar on the main level. And he looks at the bartender and uh, he says to her, he says, your husband's still the chief cook here? She goes, yep. She goes, bring him out. So she goes into the back, goes into the kitchen, brings out her husband, the chef, and uh, takes him aside. And I'm like, I can't really hear what he's doing. But then the two of them go into the back kitchen. And I'm thinking, this guy with a bag of doves and fatigues is going into, you know, the kitchen of this really nice hotel. Like, that never would happen here in Calgary oh. or anywhere, I wouldn't think. So he comes out. He goes, 
give it 20 minutes, dude. He says, you'll have your, your taste of doves. And sure enough, the chef comes out 20 minutes later with about 15 um, doves. They're just dove breasts, right? He's basically cleaned them. Uh, he's grilled them, you know, and they have a special sauce that they put on them. And he brings out this platter of doves and puts it in front of me. And there's probably 25, 30 guys at this bar looking at me. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, this ain't Kansas anymore. So they're like, come on, dude, you're going you're gonna to have your first dove. So I picked it up. I kind of swallowed. I looked at it. Took a drink, took another drink, and then I put it in my mouth and I was like, hey. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> tastes like chicken. But the story basically is, you know, I was out of my element. Yeah. And uh, as, as uncomfortable as I could have been in that situation, um, it's always important to um, open your mind, have a broader perspective go to different markets, talk to people, get an understanding for what it is that they do and how they do things. So as an example, our GeoTrack um, technology wouldn't work quite the same in Midland, Texas. And the reason for that is they all know where their trucks are because you can see one pump jack, pump jack from the other. When you go out into an oil field in West Texas, it is a sea of pump jacks. Oh. And so you can see, you know, half ton trucks dotted all over the horizon. So it's not like here in Canada where, you know, we have a, you know, we have a fairly dense forest or, you know, we, you know, you can't see one pump jack from the other. And so, you know, you do really need mapping and GPS technology to, to get you into rural and, and out of, out of the way places. But in Midland, Texas, they didn't need that. They're like, you know what? I'm looking for John and I can see John's truck, you know, four miles down the road here. And uh, I was like, okay, so you don't need GPS. And, but that was a learning experience, yeah. right? But there was lots of other oil and gas plays in the U.S. that GeoTrack could be involved in. And so it was important for us to talk to those people um, and get a sense for, for what it is they do and how they do it. It seems like common sense to, to speak to your market before you go too far or whatever. And, um, you know, if you just assume that there's tons of oil in Texas and you're going to, you know, sell like crazy down there, you're up for a big surprise when you get down there and they're cooking dove in the bar and uh, they don't need your, your technology at all. And they're not interested. They're not interested. Yeah. And they're certainly not interested in buying it from a northerner. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you do have to ingratiate yourself some way into some of the markets. Um, but you're right. You, you know, you think small initially, you have a test market. Uh, you have um, a minimal viable product that you get out there. You don't go out with a full-blown, you know, development that's taken four years and realize, whoa, I just wasted, you know, all that time and mm -hmm. all that money mm -hmm. and all that effort and all those tears. Yeah. And uh, so you go out with an MVP, you go into a small test market, you, you know, you test out your theories and your ideas. You talk to people about, you know, your business plan. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs believe that, you know, everyone's out there to steal their IP, but you have to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. You have to talk to more than just your dog or your cat. And uh, so, you know, you have to get out there and, and test your ideas and, uh, and talk to people. Don't be afraid to talk to people and say, you know, ask them, what, what do you think I'm missing here? What am I not doing right? And, uh, and let people be honest and give you honest feedback. Nice. That's great. Um, now, I want to totally switch gears because before we turn the mics on 
you and I are having a, a really interesting conversation about something else you're involved in, a uh, hundred year old business. Um, why don't we, why don't you tell us about that? Cause I think that's pretty fascinating. Al, you're telling stories now. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, on, on the sideline, um, when I'm not giving business advice or, um, you know, kind of guiding entrepreneurs and young people, um, through business, I am out in the back country, the back country of Banff National Park. And the best way to see Banff National Park is from a horse. It is the best convertible you will ever use. So I'm part of a group called the Trail Riders of the Canadian Rockies. And it's an organization that was started many, many years ago, back in the early 20s. And it started because uh, Canadian Pacific Railway was uh, building their new railway from the east to the west. They had opened up some areas uh, near the Banff Springs and uh, Chateau Lake Louise and the Jasper Park Lodge. And so they wanted to bring these people from the east and have them experience the mountains in the west. Uh, and so what they did is they started up a hiking company and uh, a riding group. And so what they did is they, they had people come out and they were hiking all over the mountains and you know, getting out people uh, on horseback and riding through uh, different trails. And it was, we have five or 6,000 members worldwide. People come in from Australia. They come in from Asia. They come in from all over the place. We've had the king and queen of Thailand as our members. We have, uh, you know, as young as eight-year-old and as old as 92. And our 92-year-old, she, uh, she was from Baltimore. And she used to drive from Baltimore to Montana by herself. Wow. At 92. Wow. Basically, you know, three quarters of the way across the United States. And then she would connect with her son who would come in from Seattle. So he drove from Seattle to Montana as well. And he was 70, right? You can imagine, 92 yeah, yeah. and 70. So then the two of them would drop a car and drive up to Alberta to do our ride. Now, you know, she needed a little help to get up on the horse, but she never complained. She was a trooper. And for years and years and years, she always said, Kevin, this is my last year. This is my last year. And I said, oh, I don't know. I think you got a few years yet in you yet. And uh, she would come back year after year after year. And then finally, there was a year she didn't come back. And uh, But, you know, it's, it's, an, uh, and it's an amazing group. It was started by Rand McNally Maps, um, Life Magazine, Canadian Pacific Railway, and National Geographic. And uh, they started in a place called Wolverine Pass back in 1923. And uh, they, you know, under, you know, fur boughs and wet weather, you know, they're standing out there drinking their cowboy coffee and they're looking at each other and going, you know what? I think we need to start a group. Um, and they started the Trail Riders of the Canadian Rockies. And it was owned and operated primarily by Canadian Pacific Railway up until the 60s. And then it became a private organization. So we work with outfitters throughout the province and we have a special relationship with the uh, Banff National Park. And we have a number of different areas that we can go into and set up a camp. So what we'll do is we'll go in in late June and we'll set up this camp. We have a 10,000 volt fence for bears to keep the bears out. Okay. It doesn't keep the deer out, but it does keep the bears out. And we have wall tents. We even have authentic teepees if people want to stay in authentic teepees. Uh, we have a kitchen tent and, you know, we have a, always have a big campfire and uh, we have four course meals and full breakfasts and we'll do barbecues on the trails at lunch. And we have a, a guide 
and we have wranglers and we have cooks and we have uh, camp people. So, you know, we can really look after this group well. So you would never think you could do this in the backcountry. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, they've been doing it for almost 100 years. That's amazing. So, yeah, so we're going to be sharing, or, you know, sharing with people our anniversary and uh, we're going to get a number of organizations involved. And um, it is amazing. You know, the first time I was ever tracked by a cougar. Oh, wow. Was on a horse. Wow. And uh, it was a, a bit scary, you know, because most people focus on bears. You know, they're worried about grizzlies or black bears. Uh, not me. I'm worried about cougars. And I'm not talking about the ones downtown. <laughs> I'm talking about the ones out in the backcountry. You know, they're very, uh, they're very cunning. They're very stealth. You can rarely see them. And uh, so, you know, and they can calculate a person on a saddle. Wow. Which means that they can take high ground and be able to bring you off your saddle. Whereas a grizzly bear just sees you as one big clump and is like, that's a lot of work. And uh, so you often see grizzlies run from bears. They're not, uh, or sorry, you see grizzlies run from horses. Yeah. They don't often uh, stick around with horses. So I did get tracked one day by a very large male cougar and I'm out with a crowd probably 15 of us. And uh, we have some young people, some eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, um, good riders, but uh, I'm not sure if they could tangle with a cougar. So I just called up the line and just said, we're going to go into a canter. And uh, so the guide up front didn't ask any questions, just went into a canter and took the crowd away. I stayed behind. For us non-horse people, what's a canter? A canter is just down from uh, a gallop. Oh, okay. Right? So, so you go pick, from a Pick up the pace of it. Yeah. You okay. go from a trot to a canter to a gallop. Okay. We don't often gallop in the mountains. I guess not. No, not in those trails. But uh, we were able to do a canter. And so uh, I stayed back. I did not want to have a panic. I did not want to have young people coming off their saddles and uh, scattering all over the place. And uh, so I held back and this cougar stayed with me for a few minutes. And then he went off. Gave up. Well, he either gave up or he was looking for higher ground. Mm. And... Uh, so I, uh, I kind of waited and he never came back. So fortunately for me, uh, that was uh, a tangle I didn't have to worry about. But I did get back to camp and the, and the guide ahead said what was going on. And I told him quietly. And he was like, whoa, you did the right thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, you're out in the backcountry and those things can happen. But, um, you know, uh, we always have ways of keeping people safe and um you know, looking after people and, you know, we always have a sat phone with us. We can always bring in a helicopter if we need to. So, uh, but we've been doing it for a very long time yeah. and, you know, we can have, uh, doctors come in on the rides if we needed a doctor or poet, you know, cowboy poets, or we'll have people bring their guitars, you know, and do a campfire. Um, or we'll have elders from the local tribes come in and give a talk. Cool. Right. Um, you know, the art of storytelling is getting lost Al. Absolutely. Right. And so uh, this is a great opportunity to kind of put your phone away and uh, put down the Internet and uh, and actually listen to people and listen to their stories. Nice. Yeah. So I really love the group. I'm having lots of fun with it. That's brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll link to uh, the show notes. Uh, it's a, we'll make a link there. So if anyone's interested in joining you on your next adventure. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to bring up that we haven't uh, already uh, talked about? Well, you know, I just, you know, what I would say to, to people, entrepreneurs, technology people is uh, do not be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. 
Do not be afraid to fail. You will learn way more from failure. Now, you're not setting out to fail. You're not trying to fail. You're not, you know, but, um, you know, you more often than not, you will. More often than not, you will. But you can't be dissuaded. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to pick yourself up. Go out there, talk to people, broaden your horizons, broaden your perspective. Talk to as many people as you can, you know, from different walks of life. And that's one of the things I love about Rainforest. You know, we have lawyers, we have accountants, we have engineers, we have developers, we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and they're all there for the same reason. They're there to give back to the community, to promote Calgary as a diverse um, economy, and uh, to be able to help and, and talk to people and, and uh, really make a difference. Yeah. And, and I will say, and Edmonton, because it's in Alberta. That's right. Alberta That's based. right. I have not been up to the Edmonton uh, uh, meetings yet, uh, but I would love to do that. But I suspect it's very similar in terms of what it is they're trying to do. So yeah. you're right. It is a province-wide um, opportunity. And so we would encourage anybody who would like to kind of learn more about uh, Rainforest um, and kind of that ecosystem of what it is that we're trying to do to build a diverse uh, entrepreneur type of economy uh, to, to check it out. Cool. Well, on that note, Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me here. And uh, I really appreciate that. Al, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay. Cheers. Take care. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was sponsored by Workhouse, bright and inspiring co-working spaces that fuel productivity and cultivate creativity. The way you were meant to work. Make Workhouse Core the new home for your business. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.